With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 66 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is in some way unformidable. And I was thinking this is perhaps a good time to be creating and promoting a podcast like this, because if you're like me, thinking about the present state of the myths just isn't all that appealing. I mean, thinking about most aspects of their past isn't necessarily emotionally healthy either, but nevertheless. May as well focus on the positives in the myths world, uh, such as they are. Franchise is about to indulge in a number retirement ceremony, uh, very rare for the Metropolitans. Only the fifth number and third player the franchise will be retiring the number for. So in my own tangential way, I thought I'd use that as inspiration and look back at someone who was briefly a teammate of Jerry Kuzman's, who essentially ceded his rotation spot to the young lefty after several workhorse seasons for some terrible Mets teams, and someone who, despite a solid career, is known in baseball mostly for two very notable home runs that he surrendered pre-Mets, and to Met fans will be known mostly as the Pitcher who towed the rubber in the first game is Shea Stadium. Today's subject, early met Jack Fisher. 
John Howard Fisher, nicknamed Fat Jack in the major leagues, apparently bestowed by Hoyt Wilhelm, which frankly seemed a tad unfair. I mean, he's a big fellow, but we're not talking Bartolo here from the pictures I've seen. Was born on March 4th, 1939 in Frostburg, Maryland, uh, but he grew up in Georgia where he attended Richmond Academy High School in Augusta, Georgia. He's, he, of course, starred in baseball there in high school. This was pre-draft days, so after high school he was signed by the Baltimore Orioles. He actually struggled at his first stop. I think he got an aggressive uh, posting and struggled and got sent down to then the Class B Carolina League, where he began to show the trait that would probably define him as a major league pitcher, and the word you will almost invariably see tied to his name in reading accounts, and that is workhorse. As even in the minor leagues, Jack Fisher was throwing innings. He threw 221 of them in that Class B league, compiling a 14-11 and 11 record and a 3.42 ERA, and from that point began a quick ascent through the minors for a team that had been struggling for years, the Baltimore Orioles at that point in time. So at ni- in 1959, at the tender age of 20, he split time between AAA Miami and the big leagues. He actually started the year in the majors in, in, at the age of 20, making his de- Major League Baseball debut on April 14th of 1959 against the mighty New York Yankees. He came in in the third inning in a blowout, and he was not too successful, threw a little more gas on the fire, struggled as a young man in his major league debut over three innings, allowing seven hits and four runs, two of them earned over those three innings pitched, and although he did strike out five batters, but whether he was up for you know someone who was you know, had a minor injury or something, or that one start, that one appearance just made Baltimore decide he needed more seasoning. He went back down to AAA for a bit, but coming up for good to the majors in June. He would pitch decently, although his record didn't reflect it. Another theme in Jack Fisher's baseball career, as he went 1-6, recorded the only two saves of his career. He was predominantly a starter once he got established. Uh, and recorded a 3.05 ERA for a not very good team. And again, workhorse, for record, uh, Jack Fisher played for a lot of very bad teams in his baseball career, including, and especially, most notably, our New York Mets. Fisher would record his first career Major League victory in his fifth career start with a complete game three-hit shutout of the Chicago White Sox, who were on their way to a World Series appearance that year, I believe, in 59. I'm pretty sure I heard Gare and Ron talking about that in the Mets-Dodgers game, the Dodgers-White Sox World Series in 59 uh, recently. Then in 1960, at the age of 21, Fisher would have perhaps his best Major League Baseball season, certainly by traditional metrics, as it was the only season in his baseball career where he would enjoy a positive one-loss record at 12-11. and 11. He recorded a 3.41 ERA, if you prefer your advanced metrics, a 1.8 war, according to baseball reference as a pitcher, in 40 games and 20 starts. Unfortunately for Fisher, he'd be most remembered that year for his last appearance and a home run he would surrender on September 
28th of 1959. Fisher was not scheduled to pitch that day. Orioles starter Steve Barber was incredibly wild. He faced five batters, recorded a ground out, then walked three batters, hit one, and threw a wild pitch, getting pulled after five batters. Fisher, again, did what he became known for in his career. He took the ball and pitched. He came on and threw eight and a third, mostly strong innings, helping the Orioles hold a 4-3 lead going into the bottom of the eighth inning. In the bottom of the eighth, up to the bat came 42-year-old Ted Williams in what would be the final at-bat of his major league career, and what would almost certainly be his last at-bat at Fenway Park as the Red Sox final two games of the year would be at Yankee Stadium, in a tale that is immortalized in baseball annals and was particularly immortalized by a John Updike essay, Ted Williams' Teddy Ballgame went out in style, taking Jack Fisher deep to the deepest part of the ballpark in center field to end his career with a home run in his final at-bat that tied the game. And, you know, Williams very famously, though, you know, had that contentious relationship with Red Sox fans, and the fans clamored for him to come out, and he did not take a curtain call. And Fisher recalled very much that, you know, as a young pitcher, he was staring in the dugout looking to, you know, and actually waited for Williams to kind of acknowledge him and tell him to just start pitching again to confirm that there would be no curtain call uh, before he uh, went on to continue pitching. I guess Williams could have had another at-bat, actually, or I don't know if they pulled him immediately after that, recognizing the moment I should check out the box score, but Fisher did surrender a run in the bottom of the ninth for the Red Sox to win that game and give him the loss. Fisher would have a similar year in 1961, not quite as good, but he would pitch well, seeming to establish himself in the Orioles' rotation, but again, his year would be defined by an historic September home run, this time on September 26th of 1960, when Roger Maris hit the 60th, his 60th home run of the season off of Fisher to put himself into a tie with Babe Ruth on the all-time single-season home run list. And of course, days later, Maris would hit number 61 off of Tracy Stallard, also a future Met and also a an unformidable podcast candidate as covered earlier this year. Now, the long, moribund Orioles had begun to turn it around in 1960 and 1961. I believe those are the only teams Fisher would play on that actually recorded a winning record over the course of his career. Uh, Baltimore and Fisher experienced some growing pains in 1962, and Fisher was traded to the San Francisco Giants prior to the 1963 season. And I see here that I'm already wrong. The 63 Giants were 88 and 74, so the Orioles were not the last winning team Fisher appeared on. I was going to say is that that doesn't really track that a team of Cepeda and McCovey and Mays and Juan Marichal would have had a losing record. Fisher got in 36 games with a Giant, 12 of them starts, uh, and he struggled badly. He went 6 and 10 with a 4.58 ERA, actually one of the worst seasons of his career overall. And hence, unfortunately for Fisher, he was exposed in a special draft that was held for the Mets and Houston. Uh, I think still the Colt 45s then, 
And Fisher would get selected by our New York Mets in that draft. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, in 1964, the Mets played their first two games of the season on the road. So, by virtue of chance, when Friday, April 17th, 1964 rolled around and brand spanking new Shea Stadium in Flushing, New York, was about to host its first game, it was Fisher's turn in the rotation to tow the rubber. And in front of over 50,000 people, Fisher, of course, as the home team, as a pitcher, would throw the first pitch in Shea Stadium history, a strike to pirate shortstop Dick Schofield, He'd eventually retire Schofield on a pop-out. Long before anyone dreamed of a K-corner in Shea Stadium, he would end the first inning by recording the first strikeout in Shea Stadium history, a notable one of Roberto Clemente. Now, this being the Mets, all of these firsts aren't going to be positive, of course, because after the Pirates went down 1-2-3 in the top of the first, the Mets did the same in the bottom of the first against the Pirates' Bob Friend which meant that when Willie Stargell let off the top of the second, he recorded the first hit, home run, and run scored in Shea Stadium history by taking Fisher deep to right field into the bullpen. It's something Stargell would get into a bit of a habit of, as for a long time he had the most home runs for a visitor at Shea Stadium history. I believe Mike Schmidt eventually passed him. Um, and I know, you know, to this day, when you see the, those lists of home runs by opponents against the Mets, regardless of stadium, it's, I think it's like Stargell, Schmidt, and Chipper Jones. I might be forgetting somebody, but I believe those are the top three. As always, if someone knows or remembers differently, please uh, let me know on the Twitter. I'm, I'd be curious. At any rate, Fisher would eventually go six and a third innings in that game, and he would record a no decision. The Mets would score three runs in the fourth to give him a 3-1 lead, but Stargell would strike again with an RBI double in the top of the fifth to cut the lead to 3-2. Then in the top of the seventh, Fisher would retire the first two batters, but Clemente would single, Stargell would single again, putting runners on first and third and chasing Fisher, and then future Met hero Don Clendenin would single to left to tie the game up at three, closing the book on Fisher and giving him the no decision. Pirates would score the eventual winning run in the top of the ninth, Stargell and Clendenin again, back-to-back singles with one out. This time, Bill Mazeroski would ground a single to plate the fourth run. The Mets would go down one, two, three, 
as Bob Friend would throw the complete game and the Mets would drop that Shea Stadium opener 4-3. to Beyond etching his name in the Mets record books for all eternity, Fisher also believes he started a baseball trend that day on April 17th of 1964, a bit unnerved by the crowds that were there for the Shea Stadium debut, and also the fact that there were throngs of media, both you know in the field level and on the field. Uh, in an interview I saw, that this is when Shea was being torn down in 2009, Fisher noted that, I asked Casey if it was okay to warm up in the bullpen instead of on the field, as was customary, in order to get away from the hustle and the bustle and all the writers, and Fisher said, I guess that started a trend. You can't find any, uh, you know, I don't know how widespread or, you know, what teams did or did not do that. Uh, I just, I, I found a Sabre Society of American Baseball Research article that also cites this story and just says that it started a Shea Stadium tradition of pitchers warming up in the bullpen. I did not know that was uncommon or not done by the Mets prior to that time, but I certainly thought it was an interesting anecdote. Starting that first Shea game is obviously what Fisher is most known for by Mets fans and Mets history, but again, I know it's a belabored word that I'm using constantly on this podcast, but between 64 and 67, Jack Fisher would be a true workhorse starter for the fledgling Mets franchise. Over those four seasons, he'd make 133 starts, never fewer than 30 in a season. He never threw fewer than 220 innings in a season over those four years either. He did lead the league in earned runs three of those four seasons, and he did lead the league in losses twice in 1965 and 1967, perhaps most notably recording a record of 8-24 in the 1965 season. But Fisher actually recorded a 2.1 and 2.3 war, according to baseball reference, in 65 and 66. Some of that probably is attributed to the sheer volume of innings he threw. But, you know, though he was 38 and 73 as a one-loss record as a Met, a 342 one-loss percentage, it's pretty well in line with the team's winning percentage in those years. It was as low as a 309 winning percentage, and only one season did it crack four with a 410 winning percentage over those four seasons. So Fisher was not exactly helped by his teammates in accruing that record. He did struggle in 1967, though, at the age of 28 in his what would ultimately be his last season as a Met. He recorded a 4.70 ERA, by far his highest over those four seasons as a Met. As previously noted, that was one of the years he led the league in losses as well. 1967, of course, was Tom Seaver's rookie year, and the Mets had other young pitchers in the minors behind Seaver that they had a lot of high hopes for, hopes for creating the first positive winning era in Mets baseball. Some of them, like another past unformidable character study, Bill Dennehy, didn't make it, but others, such as Nolan Ryan and the soon-to-be fitted and honored with a retired number 36 for the Mets, Jerry Kuzman, sure would make it. And in fact, I think you could argue that Fisher kind of went out as the need for this 
workhorse went away, and as the Mets wanted to and start installing these young pitchers in the rotation to join Seaver in 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 this uh, young rotation that would hopefully lead the team to glory, and as we know now, did. But uh, Fisher did go out as he came in as a Met, throwing innings and taking losses. In his last two starts as a Met in 1967, one on September 6th of 1967, he took a complete game loss against the Cardinals, going nine innings, surrendering, surrendering only two earned runs, but falling three to one to drop his record to nine and 17. Then on September 12th, he would go eight and a third innings against the Braves, surrendering four earned runs over those eight and a third and taking his 18th loss of the season, dropping him to nine and 18. So 17 and a third innings, six earned runs, two losses. That's a pretty standard Jack Fisher Mets work, I'd say. And I can't actually confirm that he officially lost his rotation spot to Jerry Kuzman, or I wouldn't say lost, it was just September. Uh, just seems like they probably wanted to give the young pitcher a shot, but it essentially seems to line up that way, as Fisher's last start as a Met was September 12th, 1967, and like ships passing in the night after coming back up in in September and making a couple of relief appearances out of the bullpen, Jerry Kuzman would make his first career start on September 17th, 1967. And for what it's worth, Kuzman's first start was pretty stellar, seven innings, two runs, and uh, would have gotten the win, but the bullpen blew it late. Uh, but then his final two starts, he only went one and three innings, respectively, losing each game and getting lit up. So still had a little bit of developing to do uh, before he would be the co-ace or the quintessential second starter who would win those two World Series games for the Mets just two years later. But for Jack Fisher, well, Kuzman was just getting started with his Mets career. His was just ending. He would make two more relief appearances through the end of the season, uh, pitching his last game with the Mets on September 27th of 1967. In the offseason, Fisher would be involved in a notable trade in Mets history on December 15th of 1967, and believe it or not, this is one that actually worked out well for the Mets, as Fisher went with Buddy Booker, Tommy Davis, and Billy Wynn to the Chicago White Sox for Tommy Agee and Al Weiss, who would of course be huge pieces of the Mets' amazing 69 miracle championship run. For his part, Fisher pitched very well in his one season with the White Sox. He went... 8 and 13, but recorded a 2.99 ERA in 1968. And again, by statistical measures, it was up there with his two Met seasons. Uh, he had a 2.2 war, according to baseball reference. And again, by traditional measures, probably his best season since his really first full season in 1960 with Baltimore. For that hard work, he would get traded to the Cincinnati Reds in the offseason and spend his final major league season in Cincinnati in 1969 as a swingman, you know, 34 appearances and 15 starts, and would struggle very much. He would go 4-4, four and four, but recording a 5.50 ERA. In the offseason, he was traded to the California Angels, and they released him before the start of the season, and at the age of 31, after 
a, a 10, really 11 year playing career, already Fisher decided to hang it up and retire. He dabbled some in coaching after retiring, becoming a pitching coach, but eventually uh, retired, settled in Easton, Pennsylvania, where he opened a restaurant for some time named Fat Jack's after that aforementioned nickname, which apparently was quite successful for a number of years in Easton before he sold the restaurant in 2006 and basically just went into full-scale retirement. As mentioned, the direct quotes I found from Fisher were from a 2009 interview he did with the Daily News, where he reminisced about his time with the Mets, with you know, and his appearance at the last day at Shea. Uh, he appeared there, and I think got you know renewed attention for his role as the first pitcher in Shea Stadium history, as the stadium was coming down and as City Field was dawning. For his baseball career, Fisher recorded a 4.4 war, according to baseball reference. Uh, he appeared in parts of 11 major league seasons, record, recording a career record of 86 wins and 139 losses with a 4.06 ERA. He appeared in 400 games, and he started 265 of those. I know I mentioned it already, but yes, as a Met over four seasons, he started 133 games appeared in 160, so wow, he appeared in 40 games a season. He went, and, and again, primarily as a starter, I know relievers do that and more, but uh, 38-73, and 4.12 ERA, he threw 931 innings over those four seasons for the Mets. And he may have left right as the worm was turning, right as Tom Seaver was beginning his incredible career, and Jerry Kuzman was about to take his place alongside Seaver in the rotation. But those are all, innings are all valuable when you love a franchise, like many of us love the Mets. And for being there at the beginning of Shea Stadium and logging so many innings, for a young and still struggling franchise, Jack Fisher was unformidable. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find this and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us reviews. It really helps us out. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R. And the show is at Unfermentable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets.